Father, as you know, we are about to open our Bibles to a portion of Scripture that we are familiar with, and we are about to consider a concept that we are familiar with, but we may be considering it in terms that we are not familiar with, and it is a a reality, forgiveness is a reality that is of great significance to our our lives as believers and our communion with you and understanding it rightly is so important that it is undoubtedly the case that our, our great foe, the serpent of old, would love to distract us from the truth this morning. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would grant us to have rapt attention fastened to your word you would help us to understand concepts that may be new to us, may be difficult to understand, may be difficult to accept, that you would keep the enemy away from this place, keep him away from our minds, grant us to love truth and just desire more than anything to enjoy fellowship with you. We are desperate for your help. We pray for it boldly because the forgiveness that we've received in the Lord Jesus Christ and by which we're able to call you Father and pray to you this very moment. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. As we did last week, we're going to read verses 20 through 25. Last week, we focused primarily on verse 24. This week, we will focus primarily on verse 25. If you are new to Providence, we don't usually do this. Occasionally, we will look at just one verse. Typically, we, we, especially in a narrative text like Mark, we will look at an entire portion of, of the Scriptures, but... This is an unusual situation, and I'll explain why that's the case as we, as we proceed. But as you're finding your place there, if you would stand with me, we're going to read Mark 11, verses 20 through 25, before we take a closer look at a concept in, in verse 25. Mark 11, beginning in verse 20. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. You may be seated. Two messages ago, we worked our way through the entire passage that extends from verse 12 through verse 25 which is one of Mark's sandwiches. And we call them a Markan sandwich because what Mark has done is he takes one story and he sandwiches another story in the middle of it. And here he has taken the story of the cleansing of the temple and sandwiched it in the middle of the story of Jesus cursing the fig tree. And by using that sandwich technique, Mark intends for us to interpret those two stories together. So we did that two messages ago, but verses 24 and 25 on the back end of that sandwich, those verses raise so many theological and practical questions that we have swung back around and we're spending a couple of weeks just dealing with those verses individually, although trying to do that within the context of the sandwich. So last week we looked at verse 24, now verse 25. Now based upon its connection to the sandwich... Verse 25, its connection to this sandwich, 
we know that verse 25 is not simply independent teaching on forgiveness, but it should be understood in the context of Jesus' judgment on the temple depicted in His casting out those who were buying and selling there. And the implied question is, if the temple is going to be destroyed, then how will our prayers be answered? And the big picture answer to that question is that in Christ's kingdom, the kingdom that He has been proclaiming since chapter 1, in Christ's kingdom, the physical temple becomes obsolete and our communion with God, that is our, our enjoyment of fellowship with Him, depends upon faith and forgiveness, our trusting God and our forgiving others. And that sounds very simple when you say it like that. It doesn't sound quite as simple when we read it in verse 25. What exactly does Jesus mean here when He says, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. Does that mean that if we don't forgive others, God will not forgive us? You may remember from, from the message last week that whenever we study any passage of Scripture, we need to do so holding on to two objectives. And the first objective is to interpret Scripture with Scripture. In other words, we, we cannot pretend as if Mark 11.25 is the only thing that the Holy Spirit has inspired on the issue of forgiveness. So we need to understand this verse in the context of, of all that God has taught about forgiveness. The second objective is that while understanding this verse in the context of everything that God has taught about forgiveness, we also need to allow Mark's emphasis to stand. So there's something particular that Mark is teaching about forgiveness. and We need to allow that to stand without piling all of the cross-references on top of it so as to bury Mark's emphasis or, or obscure it. So as we did last week with verse 24, this, this week with verse 25, we are going to begin by bringing in some cross-references to help us understand what forgiveness is, and then we will come back to verse 25 and zoom in on the emphasis of this passage. So, what is forgiveness? What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is a commitment to graciously pardon and be reconciled to the repentant. It's a commitment to graciously pardon and be reconciled to the repentant. This is what happens when God forgives. He graciously pardons and is reconciled to the repentant. It's, it is gracious in that we don't deserve it. What do we deserve? We deserve punishment. Grace is God's goodness toward those who deserve only punishment. We don't deserve forgiveness. It is gracious. God's forgiveness is a gracious pardon. That is, He considers, when, when, he, when He forgives us, when He pardons us, He is considering us not liable for what we have done. You might write down a few verses as, as references for this reality. Isaiah 43.25 is one. Isaiah 43.25 describes what God does when He forgives. That verse reads, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. He's not counting our sins against us. Another one is Jeremiah 31, 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So Jeremiah is explaining to us what it means when God forgives. I'll forgive their sin. I'll remember their sins no more. I'm not counting their sins against them anymore. Another reference is Psalm 32, 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. God considers us not liable for our sin when He forgives us. He considers that sin no longer to exist between us. God's forgiveness is also always unto reconciliation. That's the whole point of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the removal of a barrier preventing fellowship. Sin separates. We go, go back to Genesis chapter 3. We, fi we find that Adam's sin separated him from God. He was cast out of the Garden of Eden. 
When God forgives sin, that sin is no longer separating him from God, and there is restored fellowship, there is reconciliation. So consider another, another cross-reference, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 17 through 19. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 19, it reads this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that's union language, we talked about union last week. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And not counting their trespasses against them. That is that forgiveness language. Verse 18 there in 2 Corinthians 5 says that through Christ, God reconciled us to Himself. And what Paul is referring to there is the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Christ's atonement that makes it possible for God to forgive us. The atonement is, it took place on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ when, when the sins of, of God's people were placed upon the, the shoulders of Christ. He bore the wrath of God for those sins. He expiated the wrath of God for, for those sins. And it is on the basis of Christ's suffering for those sins that God is then able to forgive, say that those, those sins are no longer between God and His people. God forgives whose sins? The Scriptures teach that God forgives the repentant. God forgives only the repentant. God does not forgive the unrepentant. Here's a few references to that effect. Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. Luke 24, 46 and 47 Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. 2 Corinthians 7.10 reads, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just, forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Who does God forgive? God forgives the repentant. So that's, that's how God forgives. He graciously pardons and is reconciled to the repentant. So how should we forgive? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Pastor Dan read for us this morning, tells us. It reads, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Colossians 3.13 says, says the same thing using a bit different wording. It reads, if one has a complaint against one another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. Now one might say regarding Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 and, and regarding Colossians 3.13, might say, well, those verses just mean that as surely as God forgives, we should forgive each other. It doesn't necessarily mean that we should forgive in exactly the same way. Well, the Greek particle that is translated as, it means, it, it functions most naturally as, as what we would call a comparative particle, which means in the same way as. So, so the way that word functions typically is to say in the same way as. We should, we should forgive in the same way as the Lord. Now, even if we were to take it differently, there is plenty of biblical material to indicate that these components of God's forgiveness that we've just considered should be part of ours. We should forgive in the same way that God forgives. Now, that is not to say that our forgiveness is the same as God's in every way. For example, we don't make atonement for sin in order to provide the opportunity for us to forgive other people. We don't atone for sin. Christ made atonement for sin. But the Scriptures indicate that when we sin against one another, there is a very real breach in that horizontal relationship that must be forgiven interpersonally, horizontally. That's assumed by Mark 11.25 and every other verse that commands us to forgive one another. In fact, it's so important 
that Mark eleven twenty five and Matthew six that Pastor Jason read for us earlier. It's so important that if we don't forgive horizontally, God will not forgive vertically. And when we forgive, we should do it the way that God does. In other words, our forgiveness should be gracious. Our forgiveness should be gracious. We should forgive understanding that when we do so, it's not deserved by the person. In fact, that, that verse, Colossians 3.13, that I, that I quoted a moment ago, the Greek word for forgive there actually comes from the same root as the word for grace, in, in indicating that forgiveness is an inherently gracious act. People don't deserve it. We, we don't deserve it. When somebody forgives us, we don't deserve it. That's, that's what forgiveness is. It's an inherently gracious thing. So we should never get hung up thinking, well, that person doesn't deserve my forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, that's the point. That's what forgiveness is. It's gracious. We give it when the person doesn't deserve it. It's wonderful, actually. Aren't you, aren't you glad that the Lord forgave us and we didn't deserve it? Hallelujah. Wouldn't be here if He didn't, right? We would not be here raising our hands and praising this God this morning if forgiveness wasn't gracious. It's a gracious commitment to pardon. It's a gracious commitment to pardon. That is, when I forgive, I'm committing to that person that I will no longer consider that sin to exist between us. It's been dealt with. It's gone. It's pardoned. That's, that's what the Scriptures mean when they, when, when they use that word for, uh, in Ephesians 4.32. Forgive as the Heavenly Father has, has forgiven you in Christ. That word forgive means pardon that person. Consider that sin between you to exist no more. When we forgive, we're con- committing to be reconciled. We're, we're, we're not going to hold that person at arm's length, cutting them off from a relationship, but rather we're going to resume that relationship. In 2 Corinthians 2, you might write down 2 Corinthians 2, there's a case where someone has been put out of the church. Many believe, and, and I agree, that the man that's, that is spoken of in 2 Corinthians 2 is the same man that is dealt with in 1 Corinthians 5. So you might write down 1 Corinthians 5. Read 1 Corinthians 5 first, then go and read 2 Corinthians 2. But Paul writes of that man in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 8, for such a one, meaning about that man, this punishment by the majority, this, this being put out of the church, is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. The, the idea is bring him back in, reconcile. If you don't, then you haven't really pardoned the person. You're still holding his sin against him. Now, forgiveness does not mean the removal of all temporal consequences. So, for instance, if, if trust has been breached by a person's sin, it, it may take time to rebuild that trust, but the relationship is going to continue. You're not cutting that person off altogether. You're, you're going to have a relationship with them. You're going to allow that trust to be, to be rebuilt. When we forgive, we should pardon and be reconciled to the repentant. We should pardon and be reconciled to the repentant. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4 reads, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Now that that passage, Luke 17, verses 3 and 4, that's helpful for, for at least a couple of reasons. First and foremost, it tells us that our forgiveness should be like, like God's in, in a couple of ways. It should be like God's in our capacity to forgive. That is, it should be inexhaustible. There, there, there should be no point where we say, no more. But as, as many times as somebody repents, we should forgive them. But secondly, our forgiveness should be like God's in that we forgive the repentant. We forgive the repentant. It is unloving to forgive the unrepentant. It's an important concept to grasp. 
It is unloving to forgive the unrepentant. Why? Because when we do that, we are pardoning sin that hasn't been dealt with. Sin is harmful. Sin is bad for that person's soul. The, the, the sin that has come between you and that person has more importantly come between that person and God. And, and out of love, you should never say, I forgive you prior to their repentance, thereby committing to act toward them as if that sin has never happened. Further, Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, requires you to continue pursuing that person until they repent, which you can't do if you have automatically forgiven them, if you have automatically pardoned them prior to their repentance. In other words, if you pardon a person, if you forgive a person prior to their repentance, you have promised them you are not going to obey Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. It's an unloving thing to do. I know that that raises a big question, which, which leads to a second crucial thing to know about biblical forgiveness. It's the second point in your notes. Forgiveness is distinct from dealing with the emotional baggage of an offense. Biblical forgiveness is distinct from dealing with the emotional baggage of an offense. Now, I looked up the definition of the word forgive in an online dictionary, and here's what I found. Forgive, to stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense. To stop feeling angry or resentful towards someone for an offense. Now that is a perfect example, great example of why when we're studying the Bible and we want to know what a word means, we should never look that word up in an English dictionary, ever, because that is not what the Bible means when it uses the Greek and Hebrew words for forgive. It never means that. But that English definition, that English definition is so ingrained in our minds that it is very, very difficult for some to embrace the Bible's teaching on forgiveness. In spite of what the Bible teaches, we tend to, to think that to forgive is to rid ourselves of all this emotional junk in our hearts toward that person who has sinned against us. Now, I will say that in that online dictionary, there was a second there was a second definition, and that second de definition was this, to cancel a debt, to cancel a debt. Now, that is more like it. That's very close to the biblical definition. It's very close to what the Bible means when it uses the word forgive. But the other, the first one, the one that we tend to think of when we use the word forgive, to stop feeling angry and resentful towards someone for an offense, the Bible never means that when it uses the word forgive, when it talks about the concept of forgiveness. The Bible treats that, that dealing with the emotional baggage, as a separate action. And so, as I'm talking this morning, I'm going to refer to that separate action as emotional baggage handling. All right? Emotional baggage handling. Dealing with your anger and resentment, I'm talking about that. I'm going to label that with the phrase, emotional baggage handling. That isn't forgiveness, it's emotional baggage handling. Now, we have all been sinned against, right? Many, many times over. We've sinned against others many times over. We've been sinned against. And so we all know what that feels like. We all know the anger. We know the temptation toward resentment. What does the Bible tell us to do with all of that emotional injury? The emotional baggage that comes from being victimized, what does it tell us to do? Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, Paul writes this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, the first part of that, the first part of that, be angry and do not sin. That little piece is a quotation from Psalm 4.4, okay? Now, the, the be angry in, in, in Psalm 4.4, the Hebrew word underneath that 
is, is, is not so much just anger, but agitation, being shaken. And it's, it's a broader idea of, of, of the whole range of emotion that might come from being sinned against. Okay? So it could be all of the emotions that come from being harmed by someone. And the, the idea then is that such, such a response, natural response, that is normal, it's permissible, but you must not sin in response. How do you stop from sinning? How do you prevent yourself from sinning in response to that natural, emotional cocktail that comes from being sinned against? How do you, how do you prevent that? Paul says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. That, now, that's just a figurative way of saying, deal with your emotional baggage in a timely manner. When, when he writes, before the sun goes down, that is not intended to, to be taken literally. He just means get it done quickly. Get it done quickly. Why? Because if you don't take care of it quickly, he says it there in verse 27, you're giving the devil an opportunity, or, or more literally, you're giving the devil a place. Some translations say a foothold. You're giving the devil a foothold. And what he will do, if you do not take care of that emotional baggage quickly, the devil is going to camp out there and is going to brew a deadly stew of bitterness out of all your emotional baggage. That's why you've got to take that baggage. You've got to get it out as quickly as possible. That act of dealing with the emotional baggage, getting rid of that, that is what the world calls forgiving someone. The Bible does not use the word forgive for that action. Forgiveness is a non-emotional commitment to pardon a person and be reconciled to them upon their repentance. It is distinct from the emotional baggage handling. The Scriptures command us to do the emotional baggage handling very quickly. Get it out. Get it out of here quickly. So that you don't give the devil a place. The Bible commands us to forgive upon repentance. Now sometimes there may be an overlap in timing between those two things. Like If a, if a person repents right away, then, then you may be doing the emotional baggage handling and forgiving at the same time. And a refusal to deal with that emotional baggage may lead you to refuse to forgive. A refusal to deal with emotional baggage, that, that's going to, to create a, an environment in your heart that makes you not want to pardon somebody. You want to keep that sin between the two of you. But the Scriptures command us to, to deal with that baggage quickly. Having done that, we, we are then prepared right away to want to forgive them. To want to pardon them. A refusal to deal with emotional baggage often is going to lead to a refusal to give, to forgive. That, that's assumed in Mark 11.25. So th they are not, th these two things, they're not completely unrelated, but they are, they are distinct. They are two different things. Emotional baggage handling that happens quick, as quickly as possible after the offense, whether the person who has committed the offense ever repents or not. So that person just never repents. You, you ought not be carrying any baggage around about that. You should have dealt with that very quickly. Forgiveness, that, that commitment to graciously pardon and be reconciled to that person, that happens only if the person repents. Now, when, when someone sins, sins against me, I should deal with my emotional baggage very quickly that enables me to desire the good of that person who sinned against me and I pursue them for reconciliation, lovingly calling them to repentance, eager to forgive, eager to pardon and reconcile in the event of their repentance. But loving them too much to say, I forgive you before they have dealt with that sin and thereby leaving them in their sin. I would never want to leave them in their sin. And that's what I'm doing if I say, you're pardoned. 
I love them too much to do that. I love them too much and I love the Lord too much to say, I'm not going I'm I'm to disregard Matthew 18 and all of these other one another commands that call me to love my brother, love my sister by addressing their sin. And as I wait for them to repent, as I wait for them to repent, I'm not angry, not bitter, because I did my emotional baggage handling, which is not the same as forgiving. I did my emotional baggage handling in obedience to Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27. I did that very quickly after the sin. And so very quickly after the sin, I was poised, eager to forgive, but not free to do so until they have repented. Now, I've heard on occasion in, in response to, to this teaching, I've heard people say things like, oh, so I don't have to forgive until, until so-and-so repents. Now, think about how that's phrased. I don't have to forgive until so-and-so repents. Someone who says, I don't have to forgive until so-and-so repents, either is still equating forgiveness with emotional baggage handling or has not obeyed Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 by engaging in timely emotional baggage handling. Because if they, if, if, if they understood the difference between the two and they, had, and they had dealt with their emotional baggage, they would never say, I don't have to forgive. They would say, I don't get to forgive until so-and-so repents, but I can't wait to do so because I want them to deal with their sin because I love them. They're eager to forgive just as God is eager to forgive. Now, with, with that broader context in mind, let's, let's consider Mark's emphasis in 11.25. Unforgiveness harms our communion with the Lord. Unforgiveness harms our communion with the Lord. Last time we considered the difference between union and communion. And I won't re-preach that part of the message last week. If you missed it, you can get that on our website. I will just remind you of the difference between the two. Union is our eternal, unchanging, saving connection to Christ. Union, our eternal, unchanging, saving connection to Christ. Communion is our experiential Enjoyment of fellowship with the Godhead. It's our experiential enjoyment of fellowship with the Godhead. Which of these two is Mark 11.25 dealing with? Mark 11.25 is not dealing with our union. It is not dealing with our union. It does not have union in view. When we have repented of our sin and trusted in Christ unto salvation, we are granted what theologians call judicial, some call it legal, forgiveness. So all of our sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven forever. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's forgiveness mentioned in Mark 11.25, where it says, So that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. That is not judicial forgiveness. If God is your Father, if you are in union with Christ, you already have judicial forgiveness. Nothing can change that. Rather, Mark 11.25 has communion in view, our enjoyment of fellowship with the Godhead. And the kind of forgiveness mentioned there is what theologians would refer to as relational forgiveness. Relational forgiveness. Any unrepentant sin is going to affect our communion with the Lord, our, our enjoyment of fellowship with Him. And the Scriptures call us to confess and repent unto renewed fellowship. Our relationship itself, our union, isn't threatened. Our communion is affected. Let me give you some references to that effect, some references indicating that our unrepentant sin does affect our communion. Psalm 66.18, Psalm 66.18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Psalm 51, some of you know Psalm 51 very well. It's a very famous psalm. This is the psalm that David wrote in the aftermath of his committing adultery and committing murder. 
And he wrote in verse 12, Psalm 51, 12, he wrote, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. That grievous sin in, 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 in David's unrepentance, that grievous sin had robbed him of his joy in the Lord. And he's praying, oh Lord, give it back, please, because I've repented of this sin. It had affected his communion with the Lord. 1 Peter 3, 7. 1 Peter 3, 7. Peter writes, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So he's talking to believers. They are heirs with you of the grace of life. You're an heir of the grace of life. Live with them in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. So all these passages, Psalm 66, 18, Psalm 51, 12, 1 Peter 3, 7, Mark eleven twenty five. They speak to our need for what we would call relational forgiveness. We need to turn away from these sins that, that harm our ability to, to enjoy the Lord and be restored to the joy of unfettered communion. Look, look, look again at, at Mark eleven twenty five, And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So imagine you're standing before the Lord praying. You know that you have something against someone else, and that's Bible speak for somebody has sinned against you. Here you're commanded to forgive that person. Now, giving the other teaching that we've seen this morning, this, this assumes that we're talking about a repentant offender. That person has repented that sin. You're commanded to pardon that repentant, per, repentant person and be reconciled to them. Verse 25 Forgive so that the Father, your Father, may forgive you. Again, that's relational forgiveness. When you sin, He'll restore you. I'm sorry, when you repent, you, He'll restore you to the full enjoyment of communion. This, this is nothing to do with union. Your union can't be changed. Essentially, if you forgive, He'll forgive you. That's actually how it's stated in Matthew 6, 14. If you do not forgive that person, he will not forgive you. That is how it's stated in Matthew 6, 15. Again, we're still talking about relational forgiveness, not legal forgiveness. So we're not talking about you're, you're going to be separated from the Lord forever. If you do not forgive that person, there is going to be this, this harmed ability to enjoy the Lord. Your sinful refusal to forgive that person, to forgive the repentant, is going to remain between you and the Father, hampering your ability to enjoy fellowship with Him. Now, we may wonder, why is this such a big deal? Why would our communion with the Lord be affected by our forgiveness or unforgiveness? I could give you two reasons. The first is that when we forgive the repentant, we image our God who forgives the repentant. In other words, when we forgive other people, we're living out the gospel. When we refuse, we contradict the gospel. That's a big deal to God. It's a big deal for us to claim to be Christians, little Christs, doing something other than what He does. And, and so when we do that, He wants to get our attention. Second and more important, God loves us too much to pretend that everything is okay when we have unrepentant sin in our lives. Now, we may read a verse like Mark eleven twenty five. 25. We may read this and project ourselves onto God, thinking that, that, that it, he, he responds to us the way that we might respond to, to each other in a situation like this. And, and we think, wow, this is really vindictive of the Lord. As, as if... As if God is saying, oh, that's how you treat people. Well, see how you like it. This is not, that is not the picture. And, and if we have that idea, we, we really need to, we need to jettison that idea. We, we need to remember God's heart toward us. God, God for those of us who are in Christ... God is, is not a judge. He is a father. And he loves his redeemed. 
So his, his disposition toward us in our sin is, is not that of a judge, it's that of a father. This is a God who, who gave his son to make us eternal sons and daughters. And having saved us from sin eternally, he's not going to let sin ravage us temporally. 1 Peter 2, Romans 7, Romans 8, Galatians 5, 1 Timothy 6, James 4, all depict sin as waging war against our souls, waging war against our believing souls. And our Father is not going to just act like nothing is wrong as we lay down our arms in that fight. When, when we refuse to forgive the unrepentant, we, we've actually two things going on. Two. Because we've, we've, we've refused to forgive and implied is, is that we have failed to do that, that timely emotional baggage handling as well. Because that is, is behind this refusal to pardon. So with these known sins, we're attempting to carry on normal communion with God through prayer. He loves us too much to allow that. I have, no, no analogy is perfect, but let me share this with you. I have, I've lunched with my dad regularly. Imagine that I show up for lunch with a bomb strapped to my chest. And I want to talk to dad like we normally do. I want to talk about college baseball. Texas Longhorns. They're ranked number one. Doing really well, dad. How about that game? How's mom doing? I'm asking him all these questions. He refuses to talk about anything but this bomb on my chest. What a jerk he's being. Right? Is he, is he going to entertain anything like a normal conversation? Is he, is he going to do anything like it? Is he going to allow for a normal conversation, a normal relationship? No, he's not. He is not going to run from me. He is not going to turn his back on me. But neither is he going to, neither is he going to tolerate any semblance of a normal relationship until the bomb is dealt with. Why? Because he's my dad and he loves me. That thing is dangerous for me. It's dangerous for everybody around me. Now, I, I may pretend that it's not a big deal, but he will refuse. And, and I may act like, Dad, why are you being such a big jerk? You, you just won't let this bomb thing go. And I, I, th I thought you accepted me for me. Is, is he being vindictive? Is he rejecting me? No. There is no one who cares for me like him on this earth. Love would prevent him from just dismissing that, acting like everything is okay. That's a decent picture. It's a decent picture of what God is doing when we refuse to forgive or when we cherish any sin. God is saying, whoa, time out. This is crazy dangerous. When we have any unrepentant sin, not, not just an unwillingness to forgive, but anything. Unwillingness to forgive is certainly qualifies. But, but, but God is, 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 he is he's not going to forgive us he, in that he is, He's going to refuse to act like everything's fine. He, he's, he's, he's not giving us the cold shoulder. He, he's not attempting to give us a taste of our own medicine. He's not being vindictive. Out of love, God will refuse to act like everything is okay. Sin is harmful. He loves us. He wants that dealt with. And so he's saying to his child, you've got to repent of that thing. It's dangerous. It's dangerous for you. It's dangerous to everyone around you. Turn from that. Turn back to me. Think about what it would mean. Think about what it would mean for God to forgive when I don't. What would it mean for God to forgive when I'm cherishing sin? It would be for Him to ignore the bomb on my chest. 
By the way, that's also what you and I do when we forgive the unrepentant. We ignore the bomb on their chest. And we, we, we could have any number of reasons for a stagnant prayer life. We pray and it just seems like prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. You've, you've heard that phrase before. Any, any number of reasons for that. One of them may be a refusal to reconcile with someone who has sought our forgiveness. If you are having trouble praying, I would would just encourage you to ask the Lord to bring to your mind any broken relationships that you have refused to mend. And He will do that. He will do that. And your next step should be as this passage indicates, make it right with God. Extend forgiveness. And by that, I, I do not mean forgive them in your heart. That's an emotional thing. Forgiveness is committing to them, saying to them, I forgive you. And then enjoy renewed fellowship with the Lord. Now, some may be so eaten up with that emotional baggage that they never dealt with. That separate issue, so they've, they've disobeyed Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. They're so eaten up with that, they certainly don't want to pardon anybody. And, and they may think, well, if there's, if there's no danger of losing my union with the Lord, and I'm only going to be in danger of, of, of hampered communion, well, I'll just stay on this course. Because I hate that person and I'm not going to forgive. Well, one, one, one final thing take with us this morning in answer to that issue. Unforgiveness, if a, if a lifestyle calls into question our union with the Lord. Unforgiveness, if a lifestyle calls into question our union with the Lord. Any sin where we say, I don't care what God says. I'm going to do it anyway, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it. It's my lifestyle. That, that just indicates I don't even know Him. It, 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 it is the repeated testimony of the New Testament that the regenerate heart, the saved person, bears the fruit of salvation. Matthew 3.8, Matthew 7.17, 7, John 15.2, John 15.8, Galatians 5.22 through 23, Philippians 1.11, Matthew 18.15 through 17, 1 Corinthians 5, Titus 3.10 and 11. All these passages indicate that people who engage in sustained, unrepentant sin are unbelievers. They don't even know the Lord. Your conscience is unbothered by the fact that that. that You've got this broken relationship and you refuse to, to mend it. That, that would indicate that you, you don't know the Lord. Likewise, if, if you hear that unforgiveness harms your communion with the Lord and you're okay with that, that also would signal that you don't know Him. Psalm 34, 8, we sang these glorious words this morning. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, man. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Somebody who has tasted and seen, somebody who knows the goodness of God, who knows what it's like to have taken refuge in the Lord, somebody who's known that and says, I can deal without that. I have to have my bitterness. They just, I I don't see how they can know the Lord. The Scriptures would indicate the same. Don't know him. This must be repented of. You must repent of this and turn to the Lord. You've got to deal with this. We were created by God to be His image bearers. One of the first truths of the Bible created us to image Him to His creation. And one of the premier ways that we do this is by forgiving as He forgives. And so, as you stand praying and you realize that someone has sought your forgiveness and you have not granted it, forgive them 
as we, as we observe a moment of silence here after I pray, consider before the Lord who it is that you need to contact today to express your forgiveness, that you may be reconciled to them and restored to the full enjoyment of fellowship with the Lord. Father, in these moments, would you grant us to so treasure your presence and unfettered fellowship with you, so treasure the gospel that we would that we would climb mountains to find those with whom we are estranged that might make things right with them. And so image you well and enjoy unfettered fellowship with you. And would you forgive us, Father, for being slow to do these things? Would you forgive us for being slow to handle our emotional baggage, slow to forgive the repentant? I'm so thankful for your patience with us. I'm so thankful for your repeated reminders in Scripture of the kind of God that you are. And we confess certainly our, our need for those reminders our need for your Holy Spirit to prompt us continually to image you well. Just pray for your strength in this hour. That, that this church would be known as a church that reconciles quickly. A church that forgives as you forgive. We ask these things in Jesus' name.